Yeah, right! And this is Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Discussions of Truth. We are now streaming live at stopmassmedia.com. We have transitioned from Winwood Radio, continuing a strong relationship with them, but now streaming live Wednesdays again at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard at stopmassmedia.com. Tell your friends. All right, so uh, we are closing out the month of February, and what a year it has shaped up to be. We started uh, Discuss Your Truth in 2020 with Jordan Maxwell, who is now 80 years old. He's an American historian, if you will, and has an incredible uh, background, really, on understanding uh, not only the history of the United States, but more how it has folded from the European foundation that it was built on, if you will. That's something that is very important to consider when considering the state of the United uh, of, of the country today, the United States, and how basically a common phrase in regards to um, uh, Donald Trump, the current uh, the chief executive officer of the United States Corporation, if you will, um, has come to power. Okay, and last week we had a fascinating discussion with Dr. Bandy X. Lee of Yale University, Yale Medical School. Uh, And uh, Bandy brought to table, and she's a New York Times bestselling author, Dangerous Case of Donald Trump is the book that she wrote, a leading violence expert and forensic psychiatrist. She's the president of what she is a founder, I believe, of the World Mental Health Coalition. Uh, she's quoting, uh, she's quoted as saying, we are speaking out at this time because we are convinced that as a time of possible impeachment approaches, Donald Trump has the real potential to become ever more dangerous, a threat to the safety of our nation. Okay, and that certainly extends to the globe because a man who is... Uh, so close, 20 seconds I think is the official count, something like that, to launching any type of nuclear weapon or assault. Um, that's, 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 that can be a very dangerous situation. Okay, and so uh, Dr. Lee, uh, a well-trained uh, psychiatrist, uh, has uh, basically, is basically coming out and saying that uh, he has a, uh, he, he's not mentally capable of uh, sustaining that type of position. Uh, he's mentally unfit. Uh, he has a mental illness, is her argument. And so she's sounding the alarm across the nation for Americans. If you're American, and certainly if you're you're non-American, if you're living elsewhere, you need to be very interested in uh, 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 Donald Trump. And, 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 and what I basically am circling back to is that he is the symptom. Okay, so to today's guest, who's rejoining the program, will uh, reveal his understanding and research uh, on the voting system. Is the voting system rigged in the United States? And, and that is nothing to take lightly, because a republic that's built on democratic values 
needs to take the uh, right, if you will, to vote very seriously. Very, very seriously. It's a very serious uh, opportunity, if you will, um, that is not extended in other parts of the globe. So, the dangerous case of Donald Trump, uh, and we followed, it was last week with Bandy Lee, and we followed that up with a uh, Lindstroth report, J.P. Lindstroth. Uh, if you enjoy catching the broadcasts via iTunes or Spotify podcast platform, uh, you will have noticed there was an audio glitch in that episode. So, what we're doing here at Discuss Your Truth is rescheduling, and, and Dr. Lee has uh, graciously accepted the uh, invitation to rejoin the program, and that will be happening in April. Most likely, uh, unofficially, that date is now going to be set at April 8th, 5, 5 p.m. She joins us at the 15-minute uh, mark of that hour. 5.15 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard on uh, April 8th is the projected date to bring Dr. Lee back to the program. Okay, as we all know, uh, Donald Trump was impeached. However, he was not removed from office. Next week, we're we'll starting the new year off with, or excuse me, the new month off. Uh, new year, suppose? No, 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 no leap year. Um, okay, um, the, we're starting off March with uh, former CIA uh, agent Kevin Shipp. The U.S. Constitution and the inalienable human rights that it supports are in grave danger. Okay, you must know that. He was born in Wyoming. Kevin Chips, a former high-ranking CIA agent, in 2020 has no he had no problem holding the people we allow to occupy United States government seats accountable for what they represent and how they may be corrupting and or preventing that privilege. Again, our politicians are holding their a political assignment because of a privilege. We have put them there. That means you represent them and you have the power to remove them. That's something that we seem to be struggling with in this country. The shadow government is a system, this is a quote from Kevin, the shadow government is a system, system that manipulates Washington, D.C. behind the scenes, that operates beyond the control of Congress, that even dictates the actions of the president and affects the daily lives of every American. Do you see that becoming a reality? And this is a, a quote that I don't know what the year is, but this is a few years old. Uh, and again, I said Donald Trump is a symptom. He's a symptom and a cause, but he's a symptom of the state of the union, if you will. The corrupt, uh, the corruption that has been allowed to infiltrate uh, not only politics, it, of course it trickles down to politics, but it starts on a higher level, the corporations that operate the politics, basically. Uh, anyway, so, continuing that quote, it is a real and it is real and has been growing in complexity, Kevin says, for over 60 years. While the American people work long hours just to survive and make ends meet, the shadow government spends billions of dollars on secret operations, overthrowing governments, and engaging in covert wars that kill thousands, all without any vote or say by the American people, who, of course, represent those tax, tax dollars. Uh, the people pay the taxes the shadow government uses to fund the operations. The people starve while the kings shower themselves in gold. And in fact, the guest will be joining us here in a few moments is working on a 10th series, uh, installment series, uh, 10, 10 installment of uh, a series books that he uh, is working on. Uh, and the next installment will actually be on the middle class. 
Uh, today he'll be addressing uh, voting, and I will reveal his name. If you haven't caught on to that already, I will read that in a few moments. All right, so Kevin Chips will be joining the program to start out March, continuing into March 11th, William Alva Blunden, Cornell-educated, San Francisco State University lecturer and author, going to be bringing to the table a discussion on his understanding of the dark areas of the Internet, the rootkit arsenal, escape and evasion in the dark corners of the system. In his other book, Behold a Pale Farce, Cyber War, Threat Inflation, and the Malware Industrial complex. There is an industrial complex. Okay, and the military industrial complex is a phrase that you've likely heard before. It's a very real problem. Okay, it's a very real problem. What are its lines that are trickling down and flowing through the veins that are flowing through which bodies is really the question of what is a deep state you can start trying to dissect the Federal Reserve. Good luck with that, because there's it's never audited and there's nothing federal about it. All right. Now, as far as Silicon Valley goes, yes, it's a, a, a it's a it's a corporate uh, atmosphere where new technologies are spun from old technologies, and there's innovation all the time happening from the World Wide Web uh, protocol and platform. Uh, that was invented in CERN in uh, what was early early eighties. Don't quote me on that. Okay, Tim Tim Berner uh, Tim Tim uh, Lee, Berner Lee, I believe is, is his name. I should know that because it's a, basically a pioneer uh, of the internet. But uh, but of course the internet predated him and uh, various parts of the internet. So yes, the the internet as we know it, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and all these kind of surface uh, companies that have spun off of the deeper kind of military, hidden military communication platform uh, are a very real aspect of life. Uh, but really, what does Silicon Valley represent? Yes, it represents the military-industrial complex. Absolutely. There's no question about that, okay? There's absolutely no question about it. So we're really discussing what uh, uh, Bill Blunden is working on there at San Francisco State uh, and, uh, and and he'll be joining us again March 11th, the 18th of March, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance. Uh, London School of Economics, Professor Anastasia Nesvetalova and Ronan Palin will be joining the program to discuss, again, their book, Sabotage, and will be closing out a March with A. Ralph Epperson, El Nuevo Orden Mundial, uh, is uh, what he'll be talking about the prospect of a, a of a new world order? What is it? How long has it been in in in, in play? Uh, really, what is it? What does it mean? Why is it on the the back of the dollar bill? Okay, and then we're getting into April with uh, Google whistleblower Zach Voorhees. That'll be April first, and as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be rejoining rejoined uh, by Dr. Lee in April, and then Gerald Posner will be joining us, and he's written a book called Pharma. He's won three New York Times bestselling uh, books. Uh, Gerald Posner is a uh, is is a former Wall Street uh, attorney, educated at uh, Cal Berkeley. And I yeah, just before we bring uh, 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 Tom on, uh, Tom Hartman's joining us today. Um, I want to uh, yeah, I want to actually address uh, something in Pharma. Pharma is not released yet. I think it's coming out in March. I've been fortunate enough, uh, Simon Schuster has sent me 
a copy. So I do have a copy of the book in front of me. It's 800 pages of incredibly meticulously well-documented, researched uh, uh, history on the pharmaceutical uh, industry in the United States and just how incredibly disgustingly corrupt it is. But let me give you the idea of the substance that it contains. Uh, and this is uh, not a direct quote, but a direct kind of paraphrase. A milestone decision by the FDA in the 1960s led the agency to miss all early evidence of antibiotic drug resistance. Okay, so if you if you even get into the pharmaceutical industry, the medical industry, yes, there are very many levels of corruption within it. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. Do we all need medicine? Absolutely, yes, we do. Do we need to go to the hospital? Yes, these are important things. Do we need to be vaccinated? Yes, we do. Are there real threats out there? Yes, there are. Is there corruption that's a, a, a total other tier of threat? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so continuing. The paraphrase, creating the opening to superbugs. Okay, the ruling in the in the in the sixty by the FDA created an opening to superbugs that today sickens three million Americans annually and kills an estimated fifty thousand. Okay, discuss your truth. I open the program with seek and destroy. It's in Metallica, uh, California-based uh, rock group and basically why i choose that song is because all of us you listening everyone out there we all have the power to seek out and destroy corruption on whatever level it may permeate through our life it's up to you okay it's up to you to make a change uh and that's why i began this problem program uh now and it's 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 fourth fourth year okay so today we will be discussing with Tom Hartman the hidden history of the war on voting. Who stole your vote and how to get it back? Progressive Voice Network David Bender, the political director, said this about the book. In, his time, in this timely and important book, Tom Hartman challenges us to fight for our fundamental right as American citizens to vote. A right that is not guaranteed in the Constitution, but should be, good point, for far too long, the basic principle of our democratic republic has been under constant attack, largely by corporate interests that literally profit from voter suppression. This book is an indispensable manual for waging and winning civic warfare. Use it. And talk show host Stephanie Miller said this, is Tom Harmon psychic? Or what? His book on voting is eerily prescient and right on time, as usual. We are in election year, folks. A grateful nation thanks you, Tom. We are in an election year, and uh, again, I, I don't take sides politically. I think, frankly, both, uh, regardless of various stances, both parties are totally corrupt, is my opinion. I bring Lawrence Lessig was on the program a few weeks ago, a Harvard Law professor, and I think both sides have very valid arguments. But I believe that the corporations that control the 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 the, the politicians for a large part are completely corrupt, and so uh, we've got other issues on hand. But do we still have a right to vote? Well, I guess that depends on who you are. Dialing in, Tom Hartman. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for re-listening. IanTrottier.com. Donate. Buy the shirt. No more lies. StopMassMedia.com. 
it's coming out in April. April 23rd, I believe, is the day. You can pre-order the book right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and various other uh, retail outlets throughout Australia, the UK, and Canada, and, uh, and Europe, Denmark. All right, down again, Tom Hartman. Hello. Tom Hartman. That's me. Excellent. This is Ian Trache. Welcome back, sir, to Discussions of Truth. Excellent to have you back on the program as we talk about your second installment, If and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of a 10-book ten, ten series, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. It's the third. Thank you. The third. Okay, <laughs> good. You're welcome. Uh, uh, guns and the Supreme Court, this is uh, voting. Say, uh, say that again, Tom, please. We did uh, Guns in the Second Amendment, and then we did the Supreme Court, the Betrayal of America, and now we're doing this one. This book is on uh, voting. Excellent. Uh, yeah, and and not to jump not to jump the gun here, but uh, your next installment is going to be on the middle class. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, Monopoly and the destruction of the American dream. Fantastic. Looking very forward uh, to that one. Um, so, Tom, break it down here for us a little bit. Um, I think the average American realizes and knows that that, that there's a problem with voting across the country, um, and 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 unfortunately, I, I I feel Tom that I that most Americans simply feel like they cannot make a change, and hence when it comes to the opportunity to vote, they say, well, my vote's not going to count, so I'm simply just not going to go to the poll. How do you feel about that, Tom? And, 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 of course, that's a, that's, that, that doesn't really have much to do with your book, but what are your thoughts on that comment, uh, Tom? And, and, and tell, us, tell us exactly uh, what's going on in your mind in regards to, uh, to, the, to, to the voting platform in this country today. Well, the, the fact of the matter is that your vote does count, and it is important. And, you know, not going to the polls is, particularly uh, the Democrats, is yeah. essentially, you know, voting for Republicans. Um, and, and generations of Americans have fought and in many cases died to get you that right, um, regardless of who you are and what your heritage is. Well said. And so to, to dismiss it that way, uh, you know, so callously, I think is, is uh, if nothing else, unpatriotic. Um, and, and, and actually, you know, uh, not a good thing. It's not a good thing for you. It's not a good thing for democracy. Um, there are constantly more obstacles being put up to vote by Republican and Republican governors in state after state. They reduce the number of polling places. They shorten the number of free, uh, uh, you know, early voting days. Uh, they make it harder to vote by mail. Um, they, they try to say that you can't vote if you're a felon and you haven't paid your fines. I mean, they, they, any little thing that they can find to deny your vote. What's so bizarre about this is that if the state of Florida or the state of Massachusetts or the state of anything, any 50 state, wanted to take away your gun, they would have to go to court. They'd have to jump through all, through, all sorts of legal hoops. It would be appealable, and but they would have to go to court and prove that you were either danger to yourself or others. And in some states, that's even a whole lot harder than it sounds. But in every single state, they would have to jump through all these hoops because the Supreme Court has said that there is an individual right to own a gun. The Supreme Court, on the other hand, in the Bush v. Gore case in 2000, said there is no right to vote in the Constitution. And therefore, any Secretary of State, and, any, and this is universal among the Republican states, 
um, can take away your vote and not even tell you, not even justify it. They don't even have to give a reason. They just take away your vote. And that's got to change. We, we really need to have a right to vote in the United States. I mean, that's just kind of flat out nuts. So, Tom... Let me let me piggyback on that kind of comment that I threw out there, and that and, and I think you you would agree. It sounds like you may agree with it, and that uh, it, 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 there seems to be a notion across the country that oh my vote's not going to count, and and you're bringing up the the point that 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 I was hoping you'd make, and, and that and that your your vote does count, and 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 you can make a change, and and you need. Uh, any listener needs to get out there. You need to. This election year, you need to get out there. You need to make a vote. Do not let, uh, you know, do not let the powers that be or the 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 the, the mystique of oh my my vote's not going to count. Do you feel, Tom, that that is a mechanical design, perhaps by various groups to kind of suppress the vote? Is that is that by design? Is that a reflection of some type of design out there? Yeah, absolutely. We've been suppressing the votes since the founding of the Republic. There were some states in which you had to be a property owner to vote. Uh, there were some states in the northern states. You had states in the first 20 years of the Republic where you actually had people of color and women voting. Um, by the 1830s, by the end of Jackson presidency, every state had banned women from voting. And, and most states had banned people of color from voting, even in the north. And then after the failure of Reconstruction in the late 1870s, uh, once again, in the South and in some northern states as well, and some, you know, middle like Missouri, uh, again, it became impossible for black people to vote. In some cases, they had fancy rationalizations like, oh, you know, we couldn't pass the literacy test uh, or couldn't pay the poll tax. In other states, they just, you know, they would just terrorize people. The Klan would come riding through the day before the election. If you were seen going to the polls, you'd be shot. This is of the history of America. And the Republican Party is carrying up on that tradition uh, in uh, in the most aggressive way that they possibly can. Yeah. So, uh, Tom, we hosted uh, uh, Lawrence Lessig uh, a few weeks ago. He's a uh, he's a presidential candidate. Uh, Democratic Party um, in 2016. Uh, he spoke about gerrymandering uh, and, and said there's a there's you know there's a major major problem in regards to that, um, which which kind of brings up a, a, an interesting point um, in regards to 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 money um, and some of these some of these campaigns. And if you have any uh, a comment on this, some of these campaigns. Uh, would it make a difference if they were publicly funded rather rather than uh, privately funded? Yeah, hugely. I mean, there's really two issues here. One is uh, gerrymandering and voter suppression are examples of when the uh, when the uh, elected officials are choosing their voters, you know, whereas our system was designed for it to be the other way around. But um, in addition to gerrymandering and, and voter suppression, um, you've, you've got just the process of voting. And I'm sorry, uh, Ian, I'm driving. I just got distracted. Uh, repeat the last half of your question, please. Yeah. So what I was basically getting at is uh, through 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 your research and your opinion, looking at looking at um, you know private funding of, of individual campaigns versus oh yeah public funding yeah public funding of elections yeah uh, well and that's a, that's a separate issue but a really huge one in 1976 we had uh, in, through 1975 coming out of the Church Commission and other congressional uh, investigations and actions uh, after the Nixon scandals of '74. Um, you know, President Jerry Ford signed some of the, the most comprehensive legislation that we've ever had to get money out of politics. And 
you know, it worked. And, and this is not new. I mean, the first the first major effort to do this was in 1807 when Teddy Roosevelt got the Tillman Act passed, which made it a felony for any corporation to give money to any candidate for public office, uh, for federal public office. And uh, but in 1976, after uh, Lewis Powell had been put on the court by, by Nixon in '72, and you know this was Powell's thing was you know uh, uh, get money back into politics, let, let rich people basically run the country. Yeah. Uh, thus the Powell memo uh, in '76 in a decision called uh, Buckley versus uh, Bellotti, yeah. the uh, Supreme Court ruled that if an individual wanted to run for public office. Uh, using their own money, which is what Wilbur and Syrah are doing, there are literally no rules. They don't have to, you know, the Federal Election Commission has no control over them because that's considered, their money is considered free speech and it's their money, so it's their speech and they can do whatever they damn well please with it. And that if a, if a billionaire wants to own a politician to contribute so much money that they basically, that politician owes their political life to this person and only votes the way that person wants, we used to call that bribery and corruption. Uh, under the 76th uh, Supreme Court decision, that is now considered free speech as well. Two years later, in the in the uh, First National Bank versus Bellotti decision, the Supreme Court extended that logic to corporations, and that led in 79 and 80 to an absolute ocean of cash pouring into the Republican Party. The Democratic Party was doing just fine with all the union money. A third of America was unionized. There was so much money sloshing around in the unions that Jimmy Hoffa was stealing it. But so the Democratic Party pretty much ignored these two decisions. But the uh, Republican Party said, cool, we're for sale. You know, here's the sign. And, uh, and you know, uh, big industries and big billionaires uh, joined the Republican Party. Now, by 92, the Republican war on, on unions had been quite successful. They knocked about half the unions in the United States and the private sector out of business or weakened them so much they couldn't support Democratic candidates anymore. And so Bill Clinton had to start doing what, Republicans have been doing in the 92 election, taking money from corporations and billionaires. And so the billionaires he picked were people like Jamie Dimon, you know, these big bankers and the corporations. Uh, he wanted it to be, you know, jobs of the future, white collar jobs. So it was banks and pharmaceutical companies and health insurance companies um, all came to basically own the Democratic Party. And now for the first time in this in this election cycle, we're actually starting to see the Democratic Party walk back to its FDR and LBJ Great Society. Uh-huh genuine progressive roots. I mean, there's literally not a single policy that Bernie Sanders is proposing that wasn't at, at one point or another proposed by either Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, or Lyndon Johnson, or Jack Kennedy. Um, every single one of them, including Medicare for All. Interesting. So, it, yeah, uh, go ahead. You know, it's, it's not like he's some kind of radical. He's just taking the party back to its roots. Right, right. And and going going with FDR, uh, my understanding is that he put a, a, a an emphasis on education, which doesn't seem to exist today in the United States. And he was, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but he seemed to take the stance that education should be a, should be a right. FDR in 1945, I think it was, might have been late 44, gave a speech called the Second Bill of Rights speech, in which he proposed that we should actually amend the Constitution and, and make it a, make healthcare a right, which means the government would have to make sure you had it one way or another. Make education a right, including college, which would mean that the government would have to make sure you had it one way or another. Make a job that pays enough that, that a single person can support a family anywhere in the country a right, which would mean that the government would have to make sure that that happened. And make housing a right. This was his second bill of rights. And again, you know, Bernie's not even proposing stuff that radical. And he was loved for that. Now, he died and never got a chance to implement it 
Harry Truman picked it up and tried to push through the single-payer health care, you know, in Medicare for all, it did not succeed. It was blocked by Republicans in the Congress. Um, but, you know, that's the, that's the legacy of the Democratic Party. That, those are the true values of the Democratic Party. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and, and it just pains yeah. me so much to hear these so-called moderate Democrats say, oh, that's radical stuff. Nobody will go for that. Oh, <laughs> Roosevelt got elected president four times. Uh, I, I believe FDR actually had an assassination attempt on him at Biscayne Park there in Miami. But, but Tom, I think you talked about felonies and, 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 and I, and, and, and during the Bush Gore years, uh, talk about this a little bit, uh, if you would. Uh, uh, something about uh, felons uh, unable to vote in Florida being shipped. Is this true, Tom? Being shipped to Texas so they could vote? No, it's the other way around. What other happened way. was uh, George George Bush was the governor of Texas, and Jeb Bush was the governor of Florida, and George was running for president. So George provided a list to Jeb of all the felons in Texas. Now, the overwhelming majority of felons in Texas are either black or Hispanic. And black people and Hispanic people have a relatively small number of last names. Most black people are either named after a president, most of the Washingtons, Jacksons, Jeffersons in America are black people, or their their names came from plantation owners, and those are all Anglo-Saxon names. They're all English you know, language names, relatively small name pool. Hispanic people, all their names are all derived from Spanish. So again, relatively small name pool. So um, when you take a, whereas white people, Caucasians have a huge name pool, um, you know, it, it, we've got names from, from Russian and from Greek and from Swedish and, you know, all kinds of languages. So when you take a list that's almost all black and Hispanic people, the Texas felon list, and you compare it with the Florida voter list, and you assert, and you don't even check, you don't even check middle names, you just look at first and last names, and you assert that anybody whose name is on both lists is a Texas felon who has moved to Florida to illegally vote in the Florida election as far as felons from voting in Florida, which is the assertion that Jeb Bush made. Um, they succeeded in knocking 90,000 African-Americans and Hispanics off the voting rolls in Florida in the months just before the 2000 election. And, of course, you know, George W. Bush supposedly won that election by 527 votes. Um, the problem that they had was that um, the BBC did some investigative reporting, and in February and March of 2001, after George was sworn in, uh, they broke this story all over the world. And it got into the American media as well. And then you had, through April, May, June, and July, throughout the summer, you had people, large, huge protests, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, in one case, in the streets in Florida protesting this. You had people talking about George W. Bush had an illegitimate presidency, that the election was stolen. And uh, the NAACP and the ACLU both sued um, both Jeb Bush and George Bush in court. And uh, George's uh, favorability ratings as a result of this collapsed. It was down around 35 percent. It was lower than lower than any president except for Nixon. And the way that uh, you know the way that George got out of this was 9/11 happened, and everybody just kind of forgot about what was going on. But the Republicans said, hey, this really works really well. If we can take a, a list that's got a lot of black people on it and compare it with a state voting list, it's going to knock most of the black people off that state voting list. And so they were looking at um, the various uh, state elections. So, so they need, but, they, but they didn't want to do it in such an obvious way that people would say, oh, wait a minute, this, this election was stolen like they did in 2000. Yeah. So in 2002, they passed a piece of legislation called the Help America Vote Act which created a new kind of ballot. It's called a provisional ballot. 
And whether a provisional ballot is counted is entirely up to the Secretary of State. And so um, they started taking, for example, Michigan took the Georgia voter roll. Uh, Georgia's almost half black, their population. Michigan took the voter Georgia roll, Georgia voter roll, compared it to the Michigan voter roll. And, of course, there were uh, tens of thousands. In fact, there were over 180,000 matches between the Georgia voter roll and people living in Detroit and Flint, mostly black people. And so the, the result of that was, uh, you know, Michigan was able, uh, Rick Snyder was able to knock almost 200,000 people off the voting rolls just before the 2016 election, which, uh, of course, Donald Trump won by, what, 17,000 votes? Um, and this was being done in state after state. A guy named Chris Kobach was organizing this. It was called Interstate Crosscheck, where they would take states with large black populations and compare them with other states and knock off all the basically all the black people. And um, this is why, if you look on page 92 of my book, you'll see that right. you know if you actually look at the exit polls, because right. people when they get a provisional ballot, they think they voted, so they walk out and tell the exit pollster, "Yeah, I just voted for Hillary." That you know, Hillary won Pennsylvania, won Florida, won North Carolina, won Wisconsin. I mean, by by five and six points. But that's how many people had voted on provisional ballots, and those provisional ballots in red states are literally not even opened unless there's a lawsuit. Uh huh. And this is this alludes to something called that you were the red shift. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's when the, when the exit polls. I mean, we used to use. You know, in the 80s and 90s, in the election of 1980, 84, 86, uh, 92, uh, 96, and, uh, and 2000, in every single one of those elections, exit polls were used to call the election. And in the 2000 election, when the exit polls showed that, that uh, Al Gore won Florida by about 80,000 votes, which was, by the way, the number of black people that, that, George, that Jeb pushed off the voting rolls, when that showed up, um, suddenly the exit polls didn't work anymore, and everybody was baffled. And because they use exit polls all across Europe, uh, we took down the government of Ukraine in the 2004 election because the exit polls showed that the, the guy who was aligned with Europe won, but the, the official results showed that the guy aligned with Russia won. And the Orange Revolution happened. A million people were in the streets that day. So, you know, exit polls are like the gold standard. Every other country uses them in Canada, all across Europe. They all vote on paper. It takes three to four days to count. We just saw this in, in the UK with the Boris Johnson election. It right. took four days to count the vote but they called the election the night of the election based on the exit polls. The United States is literally the only country in the world where exit polls don't regularly match within a percent or less with the official results. And that only happens in states with Republican secretaries of state, and it almost always happens. Uh, there have been one or two outliers, but I, you could, I think you could safely say it always happens where the exit polls show a Democrat winning, but the official results show a Republican winning. That's called redshift because it's shifting toward the the Republican Party. There literally is no such thing as blue shift in the United States. Now, in part one of your and book... This, and this is not possible because we don't have a right to vote. Excuse me. No, that's right. Uh, in part one of your book, you talk about the Electoral College and how that's supposed to uh, weed out, if you will, I'm using, that's my term, of course, not yours, uh, people like a Donald Trump from, from getting into the office. Help listeners understand right. a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, when they were putting together the the, uh, the Constitution in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, uh, this was in July, actually, this part of the debate, um, the, the, they came to the presidency, and the question was, this, this is a position that is sort of the pseudo-king position, this person is going to be commander-in-chief of the military, they're going to have tremendous power, they're going to have pardon power, they're going to have veto power, 
So um, how do we, in a, at that point in time in 1787, the, the United States was geographically the largest country, largest Western country in the world. I mean, we were massively larger than most of the European countries. Uh, you could fit half a Europe in the eastern seaboard you know, or a chunk of Europe. And so the question was, if somebody's running for president and they're mostly running in Washington, D.C., how does somebody in Vermont or in New Hampshire or in Georgia or in South Carolina have any idea if this is a person of sound mind or reasonable character sure. or, more importantly, somebody who might be under the influence of a foreign government? And that was the biggest fear that they had, frankly. Yeah. And so what they came up with was something based on what the Iroquois Confederacy did, uh, where each community in the Iroquois Confederacy would uh, basically find the most um, the, the wise elder of the community, the person that everybody trusted, the person that was nonpartisan, the person that you know everybody respected, and they would send them once a year off to these uh, giant meetings, uh, uh, the wicked Gemeinschafts, they were called. And so they took that concept and they said, let's create a, a college of wise elders. And uh, these wise elders will be told by their community what the community's preference is. You know, we'd like you to vote for George Bush or Al Gore. But they don't actually have to vote that way because once they get – because their job is to go to Washington, D.C. and get to personally know the candidates. And if they discover that one is, you know, to quote Alexander Hamilton, in the thrall of a foreign government or to quote George Mason, a drunkard um, and a person of low morals, then they could change their vote. And that was supposed to be the safety valve. And, and actually, that makes a lot of sense, given the state of communications. I mean, we didn't have any national newspapers then. This was before Telegraph or any of this kind of stuff, you know, in the 1770s. By the 1830s, it was no longer really necessary and, and largely irrelevant. And, and, and in fact, in 1974, uh, Indiana Senator Birch Bayh proposed that we uh, take, by constitutional amendment, take the uh, Electoral College out of the Constitution. It passed the House with a two-thirds majority, and it was only two votes short in the Senate. It nearly passed, uh, but uh, you know the Republicans were opposed to it. Now they're, now they're loving the Electoral College because if it wasn't for the Electoral College, George W. Bush wouldn't have been president and uh, Donald Trump wouldn't have been president. And they're planning on using the Electoral College to make Bush, uh, Trump uh, president again. So last week we uh, hosted uh, Yale uh, med professor, uh, Dr. Bandy Lee, uh, and she uh, talked about her book, The Dangerous Case uh, of Donald, uh, Donald Trump, uh, basically saying he's uh, mentally incapable uh, of occupying the office that he currently occupies. Um, we've got an election here uh, in 2020. And of course, Tom, I want to get into uh, some of the ways we can fix this system. But backtracking, are are we basically looking at for listeners to help un help understand and go out and get your book? Uh, are we looking at the uh, Buckley decision as being the main uh, the main root of the problem, uh, or being of who stole the vote? Uh, who stole the vote in your mind, Tom? Well, the Buckley decision would be more who stole the opinion, because basically it, it gave big money the power to influence elections 
Um, and and it was Buckley and then Bellotti in 78, and then, of course, Citizens United in 2010 just pulled it all together and wrapped it in a bow and put a, we definitely agree with this stamp on it. Um, the who stole your vote stuff goes back to the 19, uh, to the 2002 Help America Vote Act with the invention of a provisional ballot, which can be ignored by a Republican Secretary of State and not even open. So both those things need to be fixed, and both of those things were fixed in H.R. 1, the first piece of legislation that came out of the House of Representatives last year, uh, the first year that Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. Uh, it's a good, co- solid, comprehensive bill that got a little bit of Republican support, and it is sitting in the Senate now where Mitch McConnell will not even allow it to be brought up for debate. Uh, is there, is there, there's, there's obviously foreign money, uh, involved in this. Um, how does that get weeded out, Tom? Well, in the Citizens United decision, in uh, John Paul Stevens' dissent, he wrote that, uh, under this decision in World War II, had this decision been in effect during World War II, uh, Tokyo Rose could have funded candidates for political office and would have had the right to broadcast her messages to our soldiers. She was the famous English language uh, Japanese woman who was on the radio every day, all day, on not just on main frequencies, but also on radio, on uh, air communication frequencies, telling our pilots to give up and the war is lost and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and, and uh, Barack Obama, a few months after the decision, when he gave a State of the Union address in 2011, in uh, January, February 2011, he explicitly said from the podium that the Citizens United decision is going to bring foreign money into the elections. And, and of course, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Supreme Court Justice in the front row, San Alito, uh, mouthed, you're wrong, or, or is not, or something like that. Alito obviously was wrong. Um, it, you know, there's enormous amounts of foreign money coming into our elections. Uh, Seth Abramson, in his book uh, *Proof of Conspiracy*, documented how tens of millions of dollars poured, not just from Russia and Russian oligarchs, but also from Saudi Arabia oligarchs and the government of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates oligarchs, and the government of the UAE, and from uh, Israeli oligarchs, right into the Donald Trump campaign. And in some cases, the campaigns of individual. Um, members of the Congress. Mitch McConnell, for example, has been very heavily funded by Russian oligarchs and Ukrainian oligarchs, and which is why one of the reasons they call him Moscow Mitch. This was all, you know, essentially legalized with Buckley and, and uh, Bilotti, but but it was really officially legalized in 2010 with the United. Very interesting. So, uh, Tom, what is your moving forward here for for Americans? Um, Obviously, the message is get out and vote. You can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, what what needs to happen to uh, there, there was just the vote seems to be have stolen by corporations uh, on a, on a on a on a basis a basic le- level gerrymandering. Um, the banks are controlling the corporations. Um, what's 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 your take on moving forward in in, in twenty twenty? Obviously, we've got. A very um, interesting state of politics uh, in in the country with uh, the person that's currently occupying the office. Um, what is he, what is your what, how do we move forward here? In, in well, well into the election there's cycle. Things, there's two things that I think we all need to do in addition to you know registering to vote and showing up, uh, even if you think you're in a state where it doesn't matter. You know, uh, the popular vote, even if it's not countered. Um, for president, A, you know, you need to be taking, voting for everybody down ticket. But secondly, we need those numbers. 
But mostly, uh, we all know people who live in red states, in states where Republicans are secretaries of state, and they're aggressively purging the voter lists. And if you have any friends or relatives or neighbors or Facebook friends or whatever in a red state, um, you need to be sure to explain to them how important it is to double check their voter registration, which can be typically done online at least every month because these purges are going on every single day. That's just it's a constant rolling of these purges. And, um, uh, and, and also you need to educate them about a provisional ballot. In previous elections, and the exit polls proved this, people thought that the provisional ballot was, you know, no big deal. And, uh, but since then, uh, you know, so we need to get people so sensitized to provisional ballots, so upset about provisional ballots that if they get one, that they'll start yelling and screaming and fighting and, and, and pull out a bullhorn and call 911 and call the local uh, media and, uh, you know, call some election protection people because a provisional ballot in a red state is a ballot that will not be counted. Yeah, it, it, Trump is basically, I mean, not to, not to, not to just harp on uh, the, uh, Trump here, but but he is, I, I, a term that resonates uh, is uh, he is a symptom uh, and he's a cause. And so the issue is, Okay, obviously, uh, how do we how do we move forward? And uh, these provisional ballots uh, it sounds like a, is a, is a big big thing, but we've got a, a system that's that's it, it, it's corrupt. Is it? It's it's not out of grasp in your in your opinion, Tom. You, you think it can be? You can be fixed. Well, the Democratic Party is very committed to making voting a right, so that it's as hard for a state to take away your vote as it is for them to take away your gun. That they basically have to go to court to take yeah. away your vote, um, you know, right? And 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 that's a good thing. Uh, the problem is the Democratic Party isn't in power, and the Republican Party does not want you to have a right to vote. Uh, and they aggressively fight it at the state level, at the federal level, even before the Supreme Court. And so, you know, it's something we all need to work on. Yeah, very sorry, <laughs> state state of affairs, uh, Tom. Yeah. I uh, appreciate you joining the program. Give us a little insight into um, uh, y- y- the next the next book uh, that you've you've got coming up. Just give us a little bit of a tease. Sure, I just I just finished the last edit of it yesterday. It's uh, the hidden history of Mon- monopoly and, and the death of the American dream, and um, it's about how the average American family is paying about a five thousand dollar a year tax, a monopoly tax, uh, for example. Uh, average average cost of a cell phone, of cell phone service in the United States is seventy to eighty dollars a month. In France, it's five to ten dollars a month. In Germany, it's twelve. Uh, in Spain, it's as, as much as thirteen dollars a month. Why? Because in those countries, they have multiple cell phone companies that compete. Here, we have an oligopoly. We've got five companies, four or five companies. Um, broadband service, you know, typically in the United States for for 20 MIPS down and, and one MIP up of broadband service, you're spending between $75 and $100 a month. Um, in, in France, that's, again, $15. In the UK, it's a little more. I think it's around $22. Um, in Japan, it's, it's $19. Um, <clears throat> airfare, we're paying, uh, we're paying at least a third more for airfare than people in any other developed country in the world pay. Um, uh, you know, we pay more for food, we pay more for, uh, you know, pr- pretty much everything. And it's all because of these monopolies. It's much harder to start a new business in the United States now. Uh, the number of businesses listed on the New York Stock Exchange since 1980 has actually been cut in half. So uh, because of this massive consolidation, there is not a single industry anywhere. You know, name your industry, travel, uh, uh, airfare, 
air travel, uh, construction, uh, you know, uh, hotels, restaurants. There pretty much is not an industry left in America that hasn't boiled down to about four or five companies operating in some cases with over 100 different brand names. Um, you know, about 80% of all the things in the supermarket come from fewer than nine companies. Um, that, excuse me, that, and, and, you know, 90% of our beer comes from two companies and neither of them are American companies. Um, uh, Budweiser is no longer an American product, no American brand. So, you know, this is, this is how these big corporations have just, you know, this is why they're able to extract an extra $5,000 a year from every American family. And it's why these CEOs and stockholders are fat and happy and the stock market's going up, but all the rest of us are feeling screwed. Yeah, it, it, Tom. Beautiful topic. I uh, can't wait for 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 the release of this uh, this follow up book. I mean, both you're, you're tackling some incredible topics here. I think I think one thing for listeners to 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 think about here is obviously as inflation has gone up, and, and you're talking about the middle middle class here, right? I mean, that, that's really symbolic mm-hmm. of innovation. Go ahead and 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 health and economy and that sort of thing. You've you've got to have a strong, healthy, large middle class that seems to be shrinking. And in regards to inflation, the average worker, as you're saying, you just said we're we're all we're you know we're we're all kind of getting the short end of the stick. There, uh, that as the inflation is 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 going up, the that uh that that uh mid uh, the the wage middle wage. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the middle wages yeah, stay stagnant. These are all changes that were made by Reagan. These are all changes that were made in corporate law by the Reagan administration in the 1980s. Um, up until the 1980s, we had a vibrant middle class and we had a vibrant small and middle-sized business uh, ecosystem. There were a few large businesses, but there were the, mo- the majority of business in America, uh, both in total volume and numerically, were small and medium-sized businesses. Now, 40-some-odd years after Reaganomics and after these changes in corporate law that that were made by the Reagan administration, um, uh, it's damn near impossible to start a successful small business. The, the, the main business model these days is start a company, build it up uh, fast enough that you can sell it to one of the big guys before they squash you like a bug. Uh, whereas it used to be, you know, you'd start a dry cleaning store and then you'd pass it along to your kids. And, you know, it would be in the, in the family or a furniture store or a hardware store to be in the family for five generations. That's all dead now. And we need to bring it back, and it's really not that big a deal to bring it back. It, or, I mean, it is going to be. There's going to be a lot of opposition to it. Of course. But basically, we've been here before. We were here in the 18 in 1890 when the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed, um, and then in the 18, 1914 when Clayton Antitrust Act was passed, and then in the 1950s when the Anti-Monopoly Law was passed. And those were the things that kept the middle class strong and small business healthy and small and medium sized businesses healthy. All that, like I said, got just torn asunder by Reagan, which is what produced that, if you're old enough to remember the 80s, the, the, the M&A explosion, the mergers and acquisitions explosion, the Michael Milkins, the guys who right. were, sure. called themselves just the masters of the universe. And they were just slamming companies together and making big fees doing it. And, and if you take two companies and slam them together, you now no longer need two HR departments or two sales offices or two accounting offices. And so they were laying off huge numbers of people. And this is when the begin. This was the beginning of the massive deconstruction of the American middle class. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable, Tom. Wonderfully, wonderfully said. Uh, can't wait for that new book uh, to come out, and can't wait to to have you back on the program to to discuss it. Uh, some parting thoughts and some parting comments for listeners, uh, Tom. 
Well, I, I would say, number one, be sure that you're registered to vote. Number two, make sure that everybody you know is registered to vote regularly checks. It. I'm, I'm, I realize I'm being redundant, but this is such important stuff. And number three, tell everybody what a placebo ballot, a provisional ballot is, and don't let, you know, and, and tell them, do not accept one if it's given to you. Um, you know, and they will try to give it to you if you're in a college town or if you're in a community that's largely black or Hispanic um, and, and you're in a, a state controlled by the Republican Party. Um, and, and, you know, we've got to get uh, some balance, some semblance of political balance back in the United States. You've got, right. you know, in the Senate, you've got a Republican Party that represents about 30 percent of Americans now that controls all the levers of power, um, you know, uh, because of this big state, small state thing. And, um, you know, there's something we can do about that, too. That's in my voting book. You know, we should uh, admit uh, Washington, D.C. as a state, given two senators, and we should do the same thing with Puerto Rico. And that would sort of even the score a little bit. Well, I like what I hear. There's so much that yep. you can do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, Tom, where can listeners find uh, your, your daily – it's a daily radio program you've got, and where can they purchase your book? Yeah. Uh, the books are available anywhere, any place that sells books. And uh, the, the radio show, you can go to TomHartman.com. However you spell it, will get you there. Uh, we're on SiriusXM. We're on uh, Dish and Direct TV on the Free Speech TV Network. Uh, we're on a bunch of local stations around the country. We're on Pacifica stations as well as commercial stations. Uh, there's a list on our website. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hartman. Tom, thanks for rejoining Discuss Your Truth. Look forward to uh, bringing you back on to talk about that uh, next installment. Thanks, Ian. I look forward to it, too. And thanks for having me on your show. Tom Hartman, uh, if, you, uh, if you're not familiar with, with, with his work, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N, uh, Tom Hartman. Okay, uh, it's double N at the end, Hartman. Uh, you're going to find his stuff, and as you can tell, He's incredibly well researched. He knows exactly what he's talking about. Um, he leans towards the Democratic uh, Party, uh, certainly not Republican. I try to stay level in my approach. Uh, there's uh, what I what I say is that there's corruption certainly in in both parties. But but the the, the bottom line here is that. There are values, and you need to stand up for the values that you believe in. I mean, for instance, this is uh, an incredibly wealthy country, a massive military, uh, uh, corporations that are all over uh, the globe, obviously, uh, Microsoft, Google, uh, Apple, um, you know, whatever it may be. The key, folks... Is not money. The key is innovation. You're looking at the invention of the light bulb, the invention of the airplane, right? Uh, the radio, which I think is Marconi, at Italy. Uh, the telephone, which the first transmission was there at Jekyll Island, in Georgia, and that's uh, that's another that's another book. I encourage you to get uh, the creature from Jekyll Island, G. Edward Griffin, former guest on the program. Okay, but the issue here is, on many levels is banking. Right? And how banking totally corrupts those veins of innovation. Or rather, does it corrupt the veins of innovation? Okay, so uh, Tom brought up Budweiser. It's owned by InBev. InBev is largely European, Brazilian 
uh, if not majority Brazilian, I'm not sure which one of the, one of the other, uh, but it's not American. Um, and so, uh, looking into some of these things is important. The United States is a great, great, great country. Keeping it great is the task here. And taking your vote away is how that country becomes weakened. Don't allow them to take your vote. Get out, stand up, and vote. Okay, just like, as I mentioned last week, if this program, if this information resonates with you, because you can see that the large media channels simply only try to sway your opinion and your thinking and your vote which, in my opinion, they should not. Okay? Media should report and let you make your own opinion. They shouldn't be swaying you to make, uh, make, make your opinion. They shouldn't be making your opinion for you. You need to be making your opinion off of facts. And that's why this program is Discussions of Truth. Because we look for the facts. Just give us the facts, man. Right? Okay. So, uh, the hidden history of war on voting... Who stole your vote and how to get it back? All right, released February 11, 2020. Find it in any bookstore, according to Tom. Uh, get it on Amazon, get Barnes and Noble, whatever it may be. Uh, Freedom Reserved, No More Lies, coming your way. That's a quick read, coming your way. It's 300 and something pages, 62, I think it is. Uh, coming your way uh, April 23rd. And you can order it now, pre order on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you're outside the United States, you can get it at Chapters in the UK. You can get it. In, excuse me, in Canada, you can get it in the UK, you can get it in Denmark, you can get it in Australia. All right, uh, that is my book releasing in April 2020, so just uh, a few weeks away. Folks, this has been another edition of Discuss Your Truth every Wednesday, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard. I'm coming your way. Uh, we are now uh, starting to pick up double headers, okay? We are booked all the way into uh, all through uh, May and uh, coming up on the June. So we've got an incredible slate next week, bringing Kevin Ship your way. And Bandy Lee will be rejoining the program April 8th. Okay. One of the big, uh, big things to consider, of course, if you're interested in the pharmaceutical industry is Gerald Posner, former wall street attorney. Uh, he'll be talking about his, uh, his three-time New York Times bestseller. Uh, talking about his book, Pharma. All right, We've got a lot of great guests continuing to come your way. Uh, buy a t-shirt, no more lies, stop massmedia.com. That's what it says. You can find it at iantrottier.com, I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-R.com. Uh, stop Mass Media, streaming live always Wednesday at 5 o'clock. Listen to us, subscribe to us, uh, to me on iTunes, uh, Spotify, uh, Google Play, whatever it may be. Um, and uh, until next week, folks. If you do nothing else in your day, then certainly strive to be awesome.